All right, let's open our Bibles this evening to 2 Chronicles chapter 10. 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Last week we looked at uh, chapter 9, and we looked at the Solomon's great wealth and how God had uh, told the children of Israel when they, before they crossed over into the promised land that kings ought not to be amassing gold to themselves and horses and wives, and yet Solomon uh, did all these things, especially in his latter part of his reign. He fell into idolatry, and the Lord brought him around, and I'm really glad that he does that, aren't you? I, I love the fact that when we make huge errors or when we sin, God is not just going to throw us into the pit. He's, he's more interested in us being restored to him and to continue living lives of fruitfulness and um, and so be encouraged if you've really blown it because you're in good company because the Bible is, um, has got characters in it that are in heaven right now and they made some really heavy mistakes. And uh, I've made heavy mistakes in my life and, um, and I'm just so thankful that God is gracious and uh, he's forgiving, right? So praise the Lord for that. Um, as we get into, uh, last week we looked at the death of Solomon and as we get into chapter 10, there's some, there are many things I'm sure we could talk about, but I'd just like to talk to you about a couple things in addition to the, the history of Israel in this chapter. I also want to talk to you um, that we're going to see the United Kingdom, and I'm not talking about England, uh, the United Kingdom... Uh, united first under Saul, right? And then uh, David uh, for 40 years, Saul for 40 years, David for 40 years, and now Solomon for 40 years. We're going to see tonight is the watershed moment where it all gets split in two. And it's an unfortunate thing when even brethren can disagree so much that they've got to part, part ways and even build armaments against one another to keep each other at bay. And, and that's exactly what we see here in chapter 10 and 11. But Second Chronicles 10 and its parallel account, which is in First Kings chapter 12, they are watershed moments in Israel's history. And we're going to see two rivals forming. Uh, the first one is Rehoboam and then Jeroboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And Jeroboam was Solomon's servant. And we're going to see them each taking a portion of the kingdom. Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam being king over the ten tribes in the north. And there's at least two things that we can take away from this chapter. And it's the subject of discipleship and God's sovereignty versus man's free will. And so we're going to be looking at those two things in the context of this passage. So let's look at verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, And Rehoboam went to Shechem. And Shechem is this place that we learn about uh, first. We see it in uh, Genesis chapter 12. And it's this place right up somewhere between the middle of the Dead Sea uh, or the Salt Sea and the Sea of Galilee. It's uh, on the western side of the Jordan. Um, and it's this place where, if you remember, when 
Abraham came out of the Ur of the Chaldees, what modern-day Iraq for us, and he traveled. God told him to just take him and his family and travel, and he didn't know where he was going, and God wasn't going to tell him exactly all the details, so he keeps going, and he finally comes to Haran, which is in an area roughly somewhere in Syria or Turkey, and then they stay there until Terah, Abraham's father, died, and then they continue going down south and west into the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel today. And the first place they came to was Shechem. And it was at Shechem that God had made the covenant with David, telling him that the land that he would walk on would be his. It was a land covenant, and God was going to give it to them. And it was there that Abraham, for the first time, built an altar to the Lord, or to Jehovah. And so, going on in verse 2, it says, So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon that Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And so what did he hear? He heard that um, Rehoboam went to Shechem because he was going to be anointed king there. And uh, Jeroboam, who was in in Egypt at the time, and we're going to look a little bit later, we're going to look at why he was in Egypt to begin with. But he returned uh, from Egypt And again, remember that Jeroboam was a servant of Solomon's, whom he had made an officer over all the labor force uh, of the house of Joseph, or Ephraim, or the northern part of Israel. And again, we'll look more at why he fled a little bit later down in verse 15 when we get there. But notice in verse 3 now, he says, Then they, the Israelites, sent for Jeroboam and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. And so he said to them, Come back to me after three days. And so the people departed. And then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while while he, he still lived, saying, How do you advise me? Now, I would encourage you to underline the word, the pronoun me. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. Underline the word me there. How do you advise me, you elders of my father, to answer these people? How do you advise me to answer this people? And you know, it is a good thing that Rehoboam had gone to the elders who had first served alongside Solomon. These men had been with his father. They knew, they experienced a lot. They had a great deal of knowledge concerning the dynamics of the kingdom, certainly the people, the intrigue of different people and nations, the motivations of others, and the elders were able to discern a lot. And whether it was given divinely or through natural course, they were given a lot. There's something to be said for that. Time in means something. And there's even natural wisdom that one gains in being in a field or or being in a vocation for long enough. You learn even just natural things. And those things aren't to be pushed away either. But it's even more important when you have elders that are spiritually wise too, as these men were. But there's something that comes through time in and experience. And unless the Lord gives divine direction, there really is no shortcut. So verse 7, And they spoke to him, saying, 
And so these are the elders advising this young Rehoboam. And they said to him, if you are kind to these people and you please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. Now, in the New King James, or or in this verse right here, I, I like better the parallel chapter to this in 1 Kings chapter 12, because it has something here that I want to latch on to tonight. In 1 Kings chapter 12, again, the parallel account of this, those same men said, what they really said is, and they spoke to them and said, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them. Notice, if you will be a servant and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. And this word servant here in the Hebrew is the word abed, and it means literally a bond servant. Anybody heard that term, bond servant? You ought to, because when, we, when you open Paul's epistles, often he will begin his letter, Paul, the bond slave or the bond servant of Jesus Christ. And this is another word for that, but in the Hebrew. But notice in verse 8, but Rehoboam rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and, they, and he consulted with the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And already this doesn't sound good, does it? There's something to be said in listening to those who have age, wisdom, and experience, especially if it is coming from somebody who knows Jesus. Do you have people around you that have been in the Lord and serving or or walking with the Lord longer than you have? Those are the kind of people you want to hang out with. And do you have a younger person who you're pouring into and, and they're looking up to you? And are you pouring into them and giving them things? giving them godly advice, giving them godly counsel. But unfortunately, it's very common for younger people to shun the wisdom and advice of their elders. We see it even today, and it's, it's just natural in, unfortunately, and I say natural, meaning the old man. Our old man is bent on rebellion. And so as a young person, when somebody older than me tells me something, like when my mother told me not to do this or to do that, otherwise I would get in trouble, I didn't pay any attention. I had to do it my way, and my way led me to the same place that she told me it was going to lead me. But I wouldn't listen because of my pride and my youthful arrogance. I was youthful once. I still feel pretty youthful. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, right? And I got another 10 years maybe, and then I start to decline. But, you know, I, I feel that way. I, I, but but there, are, there is foolishness bound up in youth, right? And it doesn't mean that youth, that doesn't mean that God is upset with youth. He loves young people. He loves uh, everybody. And he loves kids. He loves you know, young adults, teenagers. He loves them. You may want to strangle them, but God loves them. Right? He does. He loves them. He's not, he knows what, what's going through their head. And so it behooves us to have patience, right? But, but unfortunately, it's very common for them to shun wisdom and to shun the advice of elders. And it's usually a mistake. And that doesn't mean necessarily that everyone who is older than us or older than that young person is wiser either. But it's important to weigh all of their experience, all of their wisdom in the context. Notice I said in the context of the word of God and proceed from there. Because here's the deal. Someone can have a lot of experience in relationships. And if they don't know Jesus, I'd be very careful because I remember uh, speaking to somebody who I looked up to. 
And they weren't born again, but they had a lot of wisdom in relationships. And I was a new believer, and they shared some information with me, some advice, and I followed that advice, and it was the worst possible advice that I could take. And it ended in disaster. So you can be older, and unfortunately, would to God that every older person had great wisdom, godly wisdom. Because isn't it a shame to see somebody who is an older person, and yet they haven't grown beyond their 30s. And they're still immature. They're still doing the same things. In fact, they've degraded and gotten worse. And now that dementia's kicking in, they're really bad. Right? But there's something about the old paths. <laughs> if there's a verse that you want to put to memory, is Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. It says, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, Jeremiah, and ask... For the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Notice he didn't say the new paths. He said the old paths. Those old paths, those old saints that have been walking with the Lord, they, they've worn those paths. And they've been on that path. And it's a well-worn path, but it's a narrow path. And, and do we really think, as a younger person, and, and, and there's people older than me. I'm learning now to really pay attention to older people who have got more experience than me. Because there's a lot I don't know. I'm learning that I, I know less as I get older. I'm, I'm learning that there's, there's so much I got to understand. There's so much I got to learn. But ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. And then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, Israel said to Jeremiah, we will not walk in it. God, we will not walk in your old paths. We want to do something new, man. It's been, we've been doing the same thing forever. Now we want to break out and experiment. Be careful. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun, is there? If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, and if it's true, it's not new. Is that right? I think I got that right. There's something about paying attention to your elders. Now, verses 6 through 11 here, they, as I was reading them, they really speak to me of the importance of discipleship. The younger men and women in the body should listen to those who are older, right? The, those who are more mature, and especially those who have been walking with the Lord for some time. But people who are spiritually mature and have been walking with the Lord for years are the golden resources in our fellowship. Let me repeat that. People who are spiritually mature and have been walking with the Lord for years are the golden resources here, not only in this church, in every church on the earth right now. But isn't it true that in order for a discipleship to work, though, there has to be mutual agreement between both parties? The younger person or the apprentice, what does he have to do? He has to swallow his pride and realize that they don't have as much uh, as they think they do. And they have to be willing to learn. And they have to learn humility. They have to learn humility. They have to learn what it really means to be a servant. Because right out of the gate, we don't know how to be a servant. Being a servant takes time. It takes humility. It takes, hopefully, somebody modeling it for me. And certainly Jesus is the greatest model of servanthood. He came not to, to be served, but to serve and lay down his life a ransom for many. Isn't that what the scripture says? And this is what I really like about the parallel account in 1 Kings 12, verse 7, where it says, 
They said to them, uh, uh, the elders said to Rehoboam, if you will be a servant to these people and serve them, then, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Now what about the older person? We talked about the younger person, but the older person, the master, they have to be willing to swallow their pride and be willing to teach the sometimes impatient young buck. <laughs> Anybody try to teach a young buck something? Somebody who's younger than you and they're full of energy and they know everything, so you can't tell them anything and God help you, you know. You're trying to slow them to, hey, slow down. Here's a good way to do it. No, oh, I got it, you know, and they make a mess of things. And that happens to all of us. But even the master, the... He has to be willing to be, impa- willing to be patient and gracious and compassionate, especially when the younger is rash and overconfident and cocky. Has anybody experienced a young person, maybe a, a teenager in your own home full, full of themselves? And, you know, I, I think when I was uh, 13 until I was about 17, I thought I knew everything. And then as I became an adult, I realized that my mom and dad got brilliant overnight that my mother got brilliant. It's like, wow, she had some great advice. But I didn't realize it until I started experiencing life for myself. Now, Rehoboam was more inclined to listen to the younger instead of the older. He wasn't relying on the old paths. He was going with the, uh, the younger men, and it created problems. And unfortunately, he heeded their advice. Now, one of, the wonderful, one of the many wonderful examples of this in the scripture is a relationship between Elijah and Elisha. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. And we're just going to look quickly. We're just going to look at the first 14 verses. And again, there are many examples in the scripture. But let's just look at this one because there's something really sweet about this. 2 Kings chapter 2. It's when Elijah ascends to heaven. Now, just prior to this, a couple chapters before this, we learn that um, the Lord tells Elijah to basically give his mantle, his authority, his um, office of a prophet to give that to Elisha, the younger man. And so notice in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 2, it says, And it came to pass, when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal, and then Elisha, Elijah excuse me, said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you, over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. And then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you not know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, yes, I know, please shut up. Then Elijah, Elijah said to him again, stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so the two of them went on. Do you you see the the wonderful thing that's happening here between these two men? 
You have Elijah, the older statesman of the prophets, and you have this younger man, Elisha. And Elisha, you know, knew that he would be taking the place of his, this elder statesman, in a sense. And he loved him, and he, he wanted to learn everything he could. He had a deep respect for Elijah. Elijah, by this time, the whole Israel knew about him and his godly character and how God had used him mightily. And this young boy was so excited to be with Elijah, the great Elijah. He says, I will not leave you. And see, that's the sweet thing about discipleship. When something like this happens, it's really beautiful. It's unfortunate that Rehoboam wasn't really interested in the elders, the elder men that served his father. He could have had something really great there. He could have saved himself a great heartache. He could have saved himself a lot of pain and agony. But he chose not to. And notice, still in 2 Kings here, verse 7, And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood, facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over, notice, on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And I love that too. He, he recognized this godly man, and it wasn't, he wasn't looking for his record collection. He wasn't looking for his gun collection, although that's pretty cool. He didn't have a gun collection. But if he did, he wasn't looking for any material thing. He's like, I just want double of what God has done in you. And would to God that people today, Christians, desire more of that. Of what God can do in our life and how he wants to use us. And to see the Lord working in somebody so effectively and say, you know what? I just want to... I want, to, I want to be like that. I want God to use me. Do you long for God to use you? It's a good thing to want God to use you. There's a blessing when God uses you. And you know it because when he uses you, you've got a big smile on your face and somebody else is blessed and you get blessed as well. Everybody benefits from this. Right? And, and notice, he says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And so he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. So then it happened, verse 11, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And then he took out the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God? Where is God Elohim of, Jeho- or of Elijah? And when he had also struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. So Elisha here, as we see just by his devotion to Elijah, his willingness to stick by him, what we see here is he's making himself, Elisha is making himself what? A bond slave. 
You know, a bond slave is not, so, not such a bad thing, especially when you've got a good master. See, the devil was a horrible taskmaster for me before I came to Christ. But now that I've come to Christ, the Lord has been such a wonderful master to me and you, to all of us. He's been great to us. I've got no complaints. Even when he brings me to the 11th hour of my faith, because what happens? Even though I squirm and I kick and I fight and I spit, he brings me through it and then I'm like, oh my gosh. Lord, I was ready to throw in the towel and look what you did. You came through again. And you didn't come through when I wanted you to. You didn't come through even on time, on my time. But on your time, you came through. And I'm, I'm the better for it because in the waiting, in the struggle, my faith has been growing. And he's like, yeah, that's kind of why I did it. Because there's no other way, Rob. There's no other way for your heart and your faith to grow if I'm just giving you everything on time. And he does that. He gives you things on time. But sometimes the time is way past and you're struggling. And then he delivers just at the right time. But he willingly made himself a bond slave. Now, in Exodus, we see this in the Old Testament. You don't have to go there. Let me just read this short passage. It's in Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 2 through 6. And this was the law concerning servants or bond slaves. And uh, the Lord says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, verse 2, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. But if he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and, he, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, you know, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. Isn't that amazing? Pierced his ear. No, marked him, marked him as a as a son, as a as a as a as a servant forever, right? And that's a good thing, right? And 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 when you have a good master, you want to stay with him, right? And this is what is meant in the New Testament when Jesus' disciples would say that they were bond slaves of Christ. And you see it in, in, the, in the epistle of James, you see it in Peter's epistles, and certainly in many of Paul's letters, it starts off with, for instance, Romans 1 verse 1. What does it say? Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. I love this. Paul, a bondservant, the word there is doulos. It's literally this same slave, somebody who loves his master so much that he goes to the door and he says, I want to be yours forever. Go ahead and pull it through, buddy. I'm here with you for the long haul because you've been so good to me. You've been so good to me. And see, this is discipleship. And Rehoboam wanted nothing to do with it. And there are many other great examples in the Bible. We think of Moses and Joshua. Time doesn't permit us to go into there, and we won't. But, and also Paul and Timothy. Timothy was a young um, you know, protege of Paul's. Very different in personality. 
Very different. And of course, the greatest example, Jesus and the disciples, especially in Jesus' relationship with Peter and how God, how Jesus dealt with Peter. What a wonderful relationship they had. And may the Lord bless us all with this, that regardless of what age you are, that you would be fellowshipping and learning from those older and more mature in Christ than you are, and also that you'd be pouring out and giving out to those who are younger than you. If you can find, some, if you can find a situation like that in your life, men who are older and men who are younger, and you become what I like to call the Sea of Galilee, You become like the Sea of Galilee because you receive from above, just like Mount Hermon flows into the Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of Galilee doesn't hold the water in. It continues to let that water go down further south of the Jordan into the Dead Sea where it's landlocked and it's so salty and bitter there's no life there. But see, the the, the life of a believer, when we receive from God, uh, from above, and then we we take it in ourselves, we benefit from it, but then we give it out. That is the way we're supposed to be. And, and that, the discipleship works that way too. We've got to have somebody older than us that we respect, that can, we can talk with on a weekly basis. Even if it's only for a half hour over coffee or an hour over coffee. Somebody who's more mature than you. And then get together with some other young person, male or female, women with women, men with men. And allow the, the, the gold that you have been given and give that out to others. What a wonderful thing that is. And when this is happening, the church will be much healthier and it will multiply when that happens. Now go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 10, back to verse 9 now. Now he, he shuns the, older, the elders' advice and now look what happens in verse 9. It says, and he said to them, he comes to the younger men now that he grew up with. He says, what advice do you give and how should we, underline the word we. Remember I had you underline back in verse 6, the word me. Now look in verse 9 and notice what he says, the pronoun has changed to we. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but there's something interesting here by Rehoboam's use of pronouns. Because if you compare this with verse 6, when he spoke with, the, with, the, with his father's advisors, remember what he said? King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived and saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? What a different thing now. He's going to the young man and saying, how do, you, how do we, how should we advise? See, Rehoboam knew that the old guard... They saw him as their king, and he would address them this way. But with the young men that he grew up with, Rehoboam endeared himself to them, making them feel kind of at one with him. And there's something here to me that shows foolishness and immaturity. It seems to me that Rehoboam had already made up his mind and his heart before he even consulted with those elders. Isn't it true that foolishness was bound up in his heart? The older men knew that it was him that was king. How do you advise me, wise men of my father? But then he goes to the group, the guys who he grew up with. Hey man, what should we say? Their proper response should have been, no, what is the Lord showing you? (laughs) You're the king. We're glad to be your friends. It's on you, buddy. You're the king. You seek the Lord and find out what he wants to say. 
Ah, but not Rehoboam. He wanted to get a consensus. What do you guys think? What should we say? And there's a weakness here that I see in Rehoboam. And I've got my own weaknesses, so I'm not pointing fingers at him. Although I will, because I've got my own. And so, then the young men, verse 10, who had grown up with him, spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you... Make it lighter on us. And thus so you shall you say to them, Rehoboam, go back and say to them, My little fingers shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. This is sort of like the Roman flagellum. Remember that little cat of nine tails? It's a very similar kind of tool, a scourge. And see, the thing is, is, the, the people of Israel were so tired by this point from all of Solomon's building projects, and he put them uh, into a, um, had an arrangement with them. Instead of paying tax, they could actually work. It was like a work tax. And so they worked, and it was forced labor, and they worked, and they worked hard. And they're like, come on, man, give us a break. Everything is built now. We don't need any more buildings, do we? And he's like, no, we're going to make it even harder on you. And you think about it, how foolish. Or let me break it down into our modern-day vernacular. What an idiot <laughs> to say something like that to people that you're trying to endear to yourself. The elders, they had it right. If you would be a servant and you serve them, and see, that's the, that's the key to it all. Because being on top doesn't mean that you're being served. In the world, that's what it means. But Jesus said, let him who is great among you be your servant. So the, the higher you climb the ladder, the more of a servant you become. And that is the key to serving the Lord, I believe, is being willing to serve regardless of your calling, regardless of your station. In verse 11, And whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I'll add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. What a very foolish thing. So Jeroboam, verse 12, And all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. So then the king answered them roughly, and King Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. But I will add to it, and my father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. Verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people. Didn't listen to the people. You know, part of being a leader, part of being a servant is listening. In fact, it's been said that God has given us two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much than you speak. <laughs> That's a good thing for me to know. Because when I first got saved, I was full of something. And I just never stopped talking. You can ask my wife. When we met, I met her in a Bible study at the Eastman School of Music. And she remarked, I remarked how quiet she was. She barely spoke up. And she remarked of how I just would not stop talking. I just wanted to be in on everything. And the poor guy who's leading the Bible study, I'm like, hey, you know, and I'm always interrupting him. I'm like, then, then, I, then I finally realized that I need, to, I need to close my mouth and listen a lot more, right? 
Notice verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people for the turn of events was from God. You might want to underline that. That the Lord might fulfill his word which he spoke by the hand of Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Notice, so the king did not listen to the people. He didn't listen to the people because he didn't have a servant's heart like his grandfather David had. He didn't. And it's important to develop a heart of servanthood. And I love, in this fellowship, I love seeing so many people that just take up things and they do things. And we got one gentleman who, uh, I don't know that I've ever asked him. He just came in and he's, he's been vacuuming the church for years. And there's another woman who comes in and she does all the bathrooms. She cleans them all and she does them so beautifully and she never complains. Such a wonderful servant. I tell you, sometimes I, I think, and those folks that do those things and, and, and there are others who mop the floors every single week. And they do other things. And see, that's servant. That's being a servant. I need to continue to foster that in my own life. And so do you. Learn to be a servant. And serve the Lord and serve people. Not out of compulsion. Just do it willingly because God has given you such great things. Serve him and serve others. And there's an old saying that says, They who love Jesus greatly serve him most or serve him best. I like that. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Then serve him with all of your heart. Serve him with all of your heart. And yes, that means being willing to do the things that nobody else wants to do. Doing them just because it's right to do. And also doing it with the expectation of uh, not receiving rewards or accolades on this earth. Can you do something just because it's the right thing to do? Can you do something when nobody will see you do it except God who sees you in secret but one day will reward you openly at the Bema Seat? I'm sure of it. Are you willing to do that? And the Lord, uh, believe me, is looking for true servants to serve him. Those who love him and are willing to do whatever the Lord asks of them. Willing to be guided by his eye. I want to be like that and I'm not there. But I want to be. I want to be when God moves his eyes and he looks, I want to follow that. I want him to guide me with his eye. And notice in verse 15, underline this phrase if you haven't already, for the turn of events was from God. Underline that. Notice that the turn of events was from God. What? <laughs> yes. If we look at the chronology of this time, uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, specifically verses 20 through 40, tell us that before Solomon had died, before Solomon had died, and certainly before Rehoboam obviously was on the throne, but before Solomon had died, God spoke to Jeroboam by the hand of Ahijah concerning what God was going to do concerning dividing the kingdom between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And it was as a result of this that once Solomon heard of it that he sought Jeroboam to kill him. He sought to kill him, and it was because of this that Jeroboam had fled to Egypt for protection under Shishak, king of Egypt. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, I, I, I go on shaky ground here going back to 1 Kings and, and referring to Jeroboam here, but I want you to see why he was there to begin with. 
And this leads me into our next section, really. We talked about discipleship, and now we're going to be talking, as we get into this, just free will versus God's sovereign will. God's sovereignty versus man's free will. Notice, so back here in time, before Solomon had died, God had spoken to Ahijah the Shilonite, told him to go meet Jeroboam out in the field. And notice in verse 26 of 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zereda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Rehoboam went out to Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field and then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it in 12 pieces and he said to Jeroboam take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord the God of Israel behold I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. And here it is. Because he hath forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David his father. However... I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler over all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand. I'll take it out of Solomon's son's hand and I will give it to you, 10 tribes, and to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will make you, I will take you and you shall be king. You shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. And then it shall be. Notice the warning that God gives to Jeroboam through the prophet. If you heed what I command you, Jeroboam, if you walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes, my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon, therefore, notice, as a result of this message that Ahijah had given to Jeroboam out in the field, word gets back to Solomon. And what does Solomon do? Does he go into his uh, office and, and, and pray and, and break down in tears and say, Lord, I've been a fool? <laughs> no. He goes after him. He puts a contract out on his head. He has the mafia go after him puts a, <laughs> take, and wants to take him out. And so... Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, verse 40, but Jeroboam arose and he fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So let me say this. If this be the case, so God speaks to Jeroboam back here. And now 
If this be the case, does that mean that God had already knew what Rehoboam was going to do before he even knew? Because God, before, before Rehoboam even rebelled and took the young men's counsel, before that happened, God had already spoken. Maybe days, weeks, a few months, we don't really know. He spoke to Jeroboam that he was going to be, ten of those tribes are going to be his. God spoke that back in time, and now Rehoboam makes this decision to reject the elders and go with the young men, and it creates a real big problem. And it's a result of his decision, at least part of the reason, that God was going to rend the kingdom. So, if that be the case, does that mean that God already knew what Rehoboam was going to do before he even knew? Yes, he knew what he was going to do. And this is one of the attributes of God that makes him unique overall, right? God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's in all places at once. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Three attributes that only God and no other being in the universe has, not even Satan. Only God has those three attributes, And does that mean that Rehoboam didn't have free will? No, it didn't. He did have free will. But it, it was just that God knew in advance what he was going to do and already had things in motion. Isn't that frightening? That's frightening. It's God knew. God knew Rehoboam's heart. He knew what he was going to do. He didn't make him do it. Rehoboam had free will to do what he did, and he's responsible for it. But God, because he's almighty God, living outside of time, separate from his creation, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, he can say, for one, just like he can give us the end from the beginning, he writes to us the revelation. He tells us what's coming because he's already seen it. And we can bet on it. It's going to happen. And everything that he has said, he has not reneged on that. He has always come through on what he has spoken, the things he has promised, the things that he has foreshown. They have come to pass 100% of the time, and we have every confidence now that everything that's coming yet future, he's going to do the same thing. Why? Because he's Almighty God. He's so different than anybody else. So he did have free will. Rehoboam did have free will, but God knew ultimately what he's going to do. And so God already had things in motion. That's why it said in verse 15 that the turn of events was from God. And this is why the Bible and the God of the Bible is unique over all gods, <laughs> over all religions, because only God, Jehovah, the creator of all things, can foretell the future with 100% accuracy. That's what makes the Bible more unique, incredibly unique over the, the Quran or the uh, Hindu Vedas or any other book, God knows. And this event with Rehoboam and Jeroboam in chapter 10 is a good example of the long theological debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Have you heard those two terms? Calvinism says that God is all sovereign and man has little or no say over his salvation. In other words, man is predestined to heaven or hell. That's it, right? But Armenianism says that a man has control, he is accountable for his actions, and he has free will to accept or decline God's you know, salvation. And both of these views have been at odds at one another for over hundreds, for over three or four hundred years now, at least. But the fact of the matter is, is that both camps are correct. Yes, God is sovereign, 
He knows because he's outside of time. He can already tell what we're going to do before we do it. So he is sovereign. There's no doubt about it. But we also are, 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 are accountable for our actions. We have free will choice to make decision, but we also will face the consequences for that decision that we make. And I believe that this whole head game that people have with Calvinism or Arminianism, I believe it all depends on what side you're looking from. Because if you're looking and you're thinking from God's side, from the eternal, from the omniscient, outside of the time domain, then you can, you can see that God is sovereign. And he is. But if you look from on the other side of the coin, on the person who is in the temporal, in the earthly, within time, as we are, then we have the right to choose. The free will choice. Isn't that what love is, folks? You choose to love somebody. You can't force somebody. You can try it, but they're not really going to love you because it's by compulsion. But God wants people who love him, right? So this passage is a good example of how God operates often, and it's well for us to understand it and not get caught up in one camp or the other. I believe that it's a simple concept, yet man has made it difficult, and there's the problem. It is. It's a heavy topic. It doesn't bother me. Does it bother you? It never bothered me. I mean, some men, they, 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 they get all tied up in knots theologically, and I'm like, why? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes. But ultimately, God knows that I came to Christ, that I was going to come to Christ. But I had to find him. He found me, actually, and I, I gave my heart to him. But I had to make the decision, right? He, he allowed me that ability I had the free will choice. He just had the unfair advantage of being outside of time and knowing it all before it happened. He never influenced me to do one thing or the other. He presented to me all the same things as he's done to everybody else down through history. And I happened to chose, choose by God's grace to receive Christ. Mystery of mysteries. I don't wrestle with that. I would encourage you not to as well. Just believe that God's outside of time. He knows. And if you're curious and you're wondering, well, am I really chosen? Well, then choose him and you'll find out you've been chosen. Pretty simple, right? Until you talk to somebody who's really heavy theologically, then they'll tie you up in knots. But, yeah, I know the passages in Ephesians, but I also know John 3.16. And I know other passages you know, for, the, for all, any who are saved, you know, or who, who will come to him, you know, there's, there's enough there. And so, in fact, King David understood this. Can I read to you the first 18 verses? And we're getting close here to the end here. Um, and we're just going to do uh, chapter um, uh, 10 here tonight. But I got to read to you uh, Psalm 139. In fact, just open it. Open your Bible to Psalm 139, this wonderful Psalm of David. And this will just bless you immensely. I hope, hopefully it'll set you free. Because I don't worry about what God knows about me about tomorrow. In fact, it comforts me to know that God knows my tomorrow. He knows my today. He knew at the beginning of time. Didn't he tell Jeremiah the prophet? And he says, Jeremiah, before you were even formed in the womb, I knew you and I made you a prophet to the nations. What? Yes, before you were even formed in the womb, before even conception, I knew you. I had a plan for you, Jeremiah, and it was already in the books. 
And Jeremiah was born, and he willingly, at some point, chose the Lord. But the Lord also had a plan for him. He knew nothing about until the Lord revealed it to him, and he was happy to take it on. Isn't that great? And then get, get this. God does that kind of stuff. He, he, he knows what he wants to do with you, and then you finally come to the place where you do it, and then he rewards you for it. Isn't that the most unfair thing in the world? But see, God is not fair. <gasps> what do you mean he's not fair? No, he's just. He's just in all that he does. I'm so glad he's not fair in that sense. Don't misunderstand me. Of course he's fair, but there's times where, you know, somebody else has something better than I do, and I think, well, that's not fair. Well, it's just because your thinking is wrong, right? Notice in Psalm 139, let this set you free. It'll scare you if you're an unbeliever, and as a Christian, it'll encourage your heart. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And David here is going to be expounding upon and bragging about God's omniscience. Bragging about things that David doesn't even know yet that God already knows in advance, right? You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand, notice, my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Did you hear that? That's exactly what I'm talking about. God knows what David was going to say before he even said it. God can tell you tonight if he so chose, you know what, three weeks from now, on this very moment, right to the second, you're going to say the word, the You're going to be in the middle of a sentence, but right at this second, boom, you're going to use the word the. And you're like, oh, right. And then you go about your life in unbelief. (laughs) And then that time comes and God's like, someday he'll go, "Uh, do you remember that? I I timed it and you did say the word the. Because I know. That's kind of scary, isn't it? And yet if he has this knowledge of you, Christian, Isn't it wonderful that he treats you? See, if I had the knowledge of me and what I was going to do sinning-wise, if I was going to sin a few days from now and do something really horrible or have some evil thought in my mind, if I were God, I would punish me now. I know you're going to do it, so I'm going to be preemptive and I'm going to send you to your room without, without dinner. Without ice cream too, Mr. Kellogg. No more sprinkles for you. He could do that. But he doesn't. He waits for me to stick my foot in my mouth. And then he goes, yeah, that was all you. Right? But notice, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And notice, David is so thrilled. He goes, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. God's omnipresence. And if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, God, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are alike both to you. For you formed me in my inward part. You formed my inward parts and you covered me in my mother's womb. And I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well my frame was not hidden from you and I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth your eyes saw my substance being unformed and in your book 
Notice this. This is a mind blower. In your book, they were all written, past tense. The days fashioned for me, when as yet they were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more than the number than the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Isn't that awesome? Now go back to Second Chronicles 10. Look at verse 16. We're wrapping things up here. So when all Israel, notice, when they saw that the king did not listen, the people answered the king and saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So all Israel departed to their tents. And what the elders had told Rehoboam came to pass. And now a chain of events would take place that would separate the northern ten tribes from the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And this became, in effect, Israel's declaration of independence from Judah. This moment of rebellion, the great rift had begun. Verse 17, it says, But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah, and King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, his, uh, there's a, another variant of his name. His name is called uh, Adoniram, um, but it's the same man. Hadoram and Adoniram are the same man, who was in charge of revenue. In other words, this was tax in the form of labor. And so uh, right here, as these guys are telling him, we don't want anything to do with you anymore. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. You guys still got building projects to do. And he sent this guy, Hadoram, to go tell them, hey, you guys, you, you get, let's get going. So what do they do to him? They kill him. They, they had had enough with Rehoboam. They stoned him to death. And, um, and what happened uh, immediately after this is recorded for us in 1 Kings 12. Uh, Rehoboam left Shechem and he fled to Jerusalem. And let me just read to you, um, right after that event, this is what happens. Uh, it records for us in 1 Kings 12, uh, 12, verse 21. It says this, And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, so he fled Shechem after this horrible incident, and, you know, and, 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 um, and he came to Jerusalem and assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 188,000 men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel. So what, what do you see happening now? Now they're fighting against their own brethren. You don't want, you're not going to submit to me now, so we're going to go after him. We're going to make it happen, right? So now you got brother fighting against brother. So they're, they're amassing all these men from Judah and Benjamin, and by, but the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. This thing is from me. Therefore, they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned their back according to the word of the Lord. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Pretty interesting, right? And so the split had begun. Israel would be divided. But the thing was from God. Now, God had done two things, right? There's, he, he, he didn't punish Solomon for the sake of David. 
even though Solomon had really blown it by all the idolatry and everything else toward the latter part of his life, he says, you know, for your sake, for, for your father's, David's sake, I'm not going to punish you right now. But I'm going to, after you die, I'm going to do it in your son's reign. So that was coming. That was already coming. And then Rehoboam rejecting the, the discipleship that he could have had rejecting it and instead following the advice of the younger men. And then he brings judgment upon himself. But thank God, God noticed God's mercy, even though he deserved... I mean, Judah and Benjamin deserved to get wiped out by a much bigger force of Israel, the northern ten tribes. But God just says, you know what? Don't go after him. And thank God... That number one, he told them not to do this thing, but thank God that they listened. It's always good to listen to the Lord. <laughs> when he tells you to do something, it's really good to listen to him, right? And so the split had begun and Israel would be divided. So now instead of one king ruling over all of Israel, it was divided between the north and the south, a king ruling over each. And so you know, if you look at a map, you can see, and, and this is where the split's going to be, Judah and Benjamin down here, and then the rest of Israel, also called, you'll see it in the scripture as we go along, it, it talks about um, it, um, it being the house of Joseph or Ephraim, because Ephraim is one of the bigger tribes in the northern part. So oftentimes in the prophets, when you see, when he's speaking about the Ephraim, he's not speaking about just the tribe because after the kingdom divides like this, Ephraim is a reference to all ten of those tribes. And when he speaks of just Judah, he's really speaking of those southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Although he refers to them in a singular way. And so there's a lot here, isn't there, to, to see. And, um, and, and, and the encouragement here is just uh, be a, a servant. Unlike Rehoboam, be a servant and be willing to disciple. Be willing to disciple and to be discipled. And, and be like the, 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 the Sea of Galilee. Receiving from above and then giving out what you've learned. And giving out what you've been given. And it's a healthy thing. That's why the Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. Unlike the Dead Sea where the water comes down. And it gets landlocked. And I tell you, there's something really strange about the Dead Sea. If you go to Israel with us sometime after the war is over, um, it's an amazing, there's no place like it on earth. It is the most crazy thing. You felt like you've walked out on the moon. No kidding. And, um, and also, just the fact that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He knew what Rehoboam was going to do, but he allowed Rehoboam to make his own decision. And so therein lies the rub, right? God's sovereignty versus man's free will. Don't get too hung up on that. Just trust that both are true. He is sovereign. He knows. But I'm completely responsible, and I have the ability to make a free will choice. God doesn't make me do anything. He could, but he chooses out of love to let me choose him. And that's just the way God works. And I believe that's true. And I believe it's replete throughout the entire Bible. So be encouraged. And as you read Psalm 139 again, to know that God knows your very thoughts before you think them. Be encouraged by that too, because he knows my awful thoughts that I'm going to think a week from now. And yet today, 
He knows that, and he loves me. Because he knows when I make that mistake, I'm going to run to him and say, God, forgive me for being so foolish. And he's like, I forgive you. I'll go and sin no more. <laughs> and I probably will sin again, and I do. And he said, and I confess it, and he forgives me again. Amazing God. You can't exhaust his grace. He's just a wonderful heavenly father. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for this chapter and uh, thank you for the things we've learned from it, Lord, and uh, pray that we would be quick to hear and slow to speak, Lord. And Father, that you would just uh, encourage our hearts with us tonight and give us all safe traveling home tonight. And Lord, may you um, warm our hearts with these things again and again. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.